0: Great. Uh, I'm Dylan Mulvin. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at uh, Microsoft Research, where I work with Tarleton, and I also collaborate with Merrill. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for spending your lunchtime with me, and thanks to Carrie and uh, Dan, especially, for helping get this set up. Um, I'm going to just start by taking you back to 1999, when there was excitement in the air, and people were wondering, would airplanes fall out of the sky? Would bank accounts suddenly dissolve into dust? Uh, Would nuclear missiles self-launch? Would Wired Magazine run an image of the angel of history totally naked on its December cover? The answers, of course, were no, 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 and yes. Uh, So I'm going to spend about the next 20 minutes or so talking about the Y2K crisis and why I think it's a potentially rich episode in the history of computing and technology and really gives us possibly some important lessons for um, thinking about the management of crisis and how we talk to people um, in the face of vulnerability and especially in the face of um, vulnerability that's a result of technological precarity. So I'm going to introduce you to some of the ingredients that are a part of this project, but it is a work in progress. Um, and I've tried to make this slide presentation out of um, only objects and text uh, that were available prior to um, January 1st, 2000. I didn't use a, a slide software um, from that period, but you'll, you'll have to forgive that. <laughs> so today I, I want to argue that the Y2K bug is a crucial chapter in the history of the public pedagogy surrounding computing. A key moment, in other words, of um, how we kind of calibrated a way for talking to the public about how computers work. It was also um, a moment for teaching people how their lives were already captured in data, right? whether or not they recognized it, and that things like infrastructure and computing could put them and their data at risk, Um, and something as simple or seemingly simple as the representation of the calendar in computer code could bring everything uh, to a crashing uh, halt. So the agenda for today is pretty brief. I'm going to start with some background on Y2K for those of you who weren't actively working on its remediation. Um, and for any teenagers who are here who have no idea what happened. Uh, and here I'll detail some of the technical origins and it's, it's a pretty broad gloss given the short time period we have um, and some of the concerns about computer literacy in the 1990s. Um, this will introduce my Y2K archive such as it is and some of the documents um, and sources that I'm drawing on to, to try to compile this history. And finally in the last section I'm going to talk briefly about the labor of repair and how people were talking about the labor of repair in this period and kind of contesting narratives about um, who was doing the work and what that work looked like. So let's start with some background. As you remember, the main problem that people imagined was driving the Y2K crisis was something called the century digits problem or representing uh, a date in six digits instead of 10. And this was an especially dangerous problem because the two-digit year year format was used in um, a bunch of different computer languages, mostly from the 1950s and 1960s. But one language in particular called COBOL, and we'll come to it later, gets kind of singled out as a problematic language, especially because it was used um, in financial and banking systems and things like uh, waste treatment facilities. So why would you choose to code digits in six years instead of, in six, six digits instead of uh, uh, eight. Sorry, I think I said 10 earlier. Um, so, anybody who remembers that period, why was that choice made? Yeah. To save space. To save space. Yeah. Right. So, the main reason was compression. Right? There was limited computer memory in the late 1950s and early 1960s. So, you had to make hard decisions about what kind of information was crucial to include. And actually, excluding 1 and 9 is a pretty easy choice, because most of the information that you were coding would be eventually be printed out, right? If you had to use it, you could print it out. And you could pre-print a template form that had 1 and 9 on it. If you had a checkbook in the 1990s, you'll remember it always said 1, 9, so that you wouldn't have to you know, go through the laborious act of writing out those two digits. Um, and there was some thinking right, maybe this, these programs and these applications will last 10, 15, 20, 25 years right? really optimistically. Maybe they'll last into the 1980s. But very few people, though there were exceptions, but very few people were imagining that they would last 40 years. And if we think today about the kinds of temporalities that are imagined for the applications that are being written, still hardly anyone is thinking in a 40-year timeline if they're even thinking one or five years ahead. So those two digits that you erased from uh, the year were pretty minor memory savings. If you were just creating uh, an Excel spreadsheet of your friend's birthdays, let's say, or not Excel, but a spreadsheet. Um, But if you were trying to manage a database for a financial firm or an insurance corporation or a government agency, say, the Social Security Administration, those memory savings were significant because of hardware costs and um, the labor costs of keeping up that hardware. So what was COBOL, which I'm going to kind of focus on as a problematic language? Well, COBOL stands for the Common Business Oriented Language. And it emerged from something that's referred to as the software turmoil of the 1950s and early 1960s. And here uh, I'm really indebted to Paul Ceruzzi and Nathan Ensmanger's histories of this period. Um, And this is from uh, Nathan's book, which is the cover of the Communications of the ACM from 1961. And you'll notice, oh, it's not that clear, so I'll describe it to you. This is from January 1961. These are all of the available languages, and there are you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of different programming languages spir- spiraling upwards in the shape of the Tower of Babel. And this represents the kind of question at that period is like, what language should we use? And different hardware manufacturers had different proprietary languages and different applications had different languages. And there wasn't a shared uh, lingua franca for getting things done. So the government and the military stepped in, this is all in the United States, to say, we need a compromise, right? We need a shared language that can work across hardware and across applications. And COBOL was one attempt to create that compromise. Um, So there were a few criteria. right? It had to be readable by novices. In particular, a managerial class that wouldn't necessarily be coding literate had to be able to read or roughly grok what it said and what the purpose of a a line of code would be. Uh, It had to be free of proprietary control um, and it had to be used for a a wide range of applications. All of that meant that it was inelegant, right? It was super ugly. Uh, it was um, super easy to read, which made it like less specialized and less interesting as a language to learn. But in 1960, the U.S. government announced that they would not purchase or lease any equipment um, that couldn't run COBOL, which basically sealed it as a, as a lingua franca for the short period going forward. So despite all of that, a tiny number of people learned COBOL. And this is going to come up again as we talk about the labor of repair. If you can see this picture, this is the uh, quote unquote 21st, 25th uh, anniversary celebration uh, for COBOL. And you can see Grace Hopper in the front there, who had, and what you can't see is that that's a cake in the shape of a tombstone uh, that says COBOL on it, because this is um, some of the people responsible for creating it. Um, and and imagining that its kind of heyday was fading. And this was, of course, still 15 years prior to the Y2K crisis. So we have a kind of contradiction here. Um, By the late 1990s, COBOL was, by most measures, the most widely used programming language in existence. It was used in 80% of all business operations, Um, but had some of the fewest practitioners. Right, and all, this has everything to do with cultural distinction and the politics of prestige. Right, so it was COBOL was day class A. It was designed to be readable again by managers, right, not necessarily people doing the programming, uh, and it was referred to as a trade school language. So those are sort of the first ingredients of this project, a problem that was created out of compromise, out of a desire to save on hardware and to make an easily readable language, and already you can kind of see foreshadowing considerations of literacy and pedagogy and teaching new kinds of people to read um, code. Sometimes this slide just makes my computer shut down, so I might have to get through it kind of quickly. there are other aspects of, of, the, of the Y2K crisis and how it was sort of constructed in the late 1990s that are, are, that are really important. But first, I have to say there's still, of course, mystery and widespread disagreement over whether or not the Y2K crisis was real or whether or not it was a false alarm. Um, but I want to say that uh, whether or not Y2K was a true threat It instigated massive programs of um, remediation and public education. In the lead-up to the year 2000, estimates of its uh, of reaching compliance and the cost of reaching compliance range from 300 billion U.S. dollars to 600 billion U.S. dollars, and that's a pretty big range. But no matter what, a massive amount of money in the United States compliance is estimated at having cost uh, 100 billion dollars. Right, so. In, in terms of disasters, would be one of the most expensive disasters of all time. Uh, and it didn't actually cause a disaster. Uh, so in other words, the legitimacy of this threat, historically speaking, is pretty secondary to the effects that the perceived threat had, since the changes that it engendered were real. And this I call a kind of crisis pragmatics, right? A crisis that is felt to be real is real in its effects, to tweak the sort of Thomas theorem of of sociology. And I think that the pragmatics of this crisis were tied entirely to the structure of the problem that there was a precise moment at which you could you could point to and say that's when everything's going to go haywire. That's when planes are going to fall out of the sky. And there were of course these there were these lags and these kind of strange temporalities to the crisis, you know, credit cards, some credit cards stopped working in 1998 if their expiration date was for the year 2000. But there was this sort of imagined moment that when we flip from 1999 to 2000, everything's just go- going to explode, right? So, unlike a hurricane or an earthquake or even climate change, which have these hazy timelines for unfolding, you know something's going to happen, but you don't know exactly when. I t- Y2K was sort of Perfect for creating fear and compelling action. The next thing that's important is um, competing notions of literacy and numeracy. So first was a concern with how computers would read or count numbers, right? And and a uh, fear about ambiguous numbers that ninety-nine would be confused with uh, nineteen, or the year two thousand would be confused with the year 1900 or some other unknown date. We might call this a kind of machinic numeracy or innumeracy. Um, I'm more concerned with um, a second kind of literacy that we more often think of when we say computer literacy, which is efforts to uh, uh, train non-specialists in um, understanding how computers work. And specifically, what the risks of something like old code or a legacy system would be, or what a calendrical error would mean for something like um, infrastructure. And there were enormous hurdles to getting people to understand these risks and to appreciate these risks, and to balance that out with just straight up fear mongering. Right? And it wasn't just like, normal folks who had to be confu- uh, convinced. Uh, In late 1998, the New York Times was still writing about the Y2K crisis as a problem for quote-unquote computer users, right? Unable to imagine that in 1998, everyone was a computer user, whether or not they sat at a keyboard or used a gray box, right? If they weren't actively using computers, their lives were being used by computers and structuring the mundane and everyday aspects of their existence. Uh, another aspect of getting over um, this sort of barrier to understanding is a strong, potent sense of betrayal. Right? Ellen Ullman, writing in Wired in April 1999, said, I think, puts it really well. She said, After being told for years that technology is the path to a highly evolved <laughs> future, it's come as something of a shock to discover that a computer system is not. A shining city on a hill, perfect and ever new, but something more akin to an old farmhouse built bit by bit over decades by non union carpenters. So in other words, the chances of successful literacy campaigning depended on teaching people that they were already entwined in digital technologies. And all that then the technology always involves constant upkeep and repair. Right, That it's not just a finished, perfect product that works or doesn't work, that it requires attention right, and, and people to work on it and to keep it going. And it might not go the ways that you expect. And you can sort of see in this quote some of the issues, again, of repair that are going to come up and labor. All of this brings me to my archive. So as a historian, The Y2K crisis offers a really challenging problem. How do you write a history of something that may or may not have happened? (laughs) And one way to do that would be to uh, go out and interview people and weigh their opinions against other people's opinions and then compare the evidence and decide whether or not it would have happened. That's not what I'm doing. Uh, Instead I'm trying to focus on what did happen. Right, That pragmatic response to the fear that something was going to happen. This creates another problem, which is because it didn't happen, because Y2K appears as a kind of um, punchline to the joke that was the 1990s, uh, its archive is really spotty. And Y2K played out in newspapers and network news, but it also played out in pamphlets and paraphernalia and memorabilia. If you were alive then, you'll remember just the amount of stuff that was branded with Y2K. uh, it played out on the web, on websites that nobody pays the server costs for now in 2017. So some of it's captured by the Internet Archive, but actually very little of it is is, is captured. There an un-archive, however, in the classical sense, and the Charles Babbage Institute has some of the papers related to a couple of organizations, and I've been there and I've looked at them and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about them. The two organizations that the CBI has are um, the Center for Y2K and Society. Does anybody know or remember this organization? Is that at the U? No. So the Center for Y2K and Society, it was an independent organization run by concerned citizens who believed um, that the government was downplaying the risks of Y2K. So they were on the far end of the chicken little spectrum. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about their collections in a minute. But the other organization that CBI has is the papers of the International Y2K Cooperation Center, which was paid for by the World Bank and backed by the UN uh, and uh, headed up by a guy named Bruce McConnell, um, who is a high-ranking bureaucrat within the White House. So looking at their two approaches, we can kind of see differing styles in teaching people and uh, appro- approaching vulnerable populations in the face of technological precarity. So the Center for Y2K in Society, or CYS, um, is fascinating. And one of the most fascinating things is their record-keeping. So uh, as far as I can tell, everything the CYS ever read or looked at is printed out. Um, And it's printed out and kind of thrown into a box in Minnesota. Uh, And it makes sense, right? If you're an organization devoted to the idea that uh, society is about to collapse, and in particular, computer technologies are about to collapse. You can't house your records or your documentation online or on computer hardware. You have to print it out. So, there, the document, the documentary evidence that they leave behind shows this build-up of the kind of um, ballast of paranoia, right? And everything that they have is email forwards, press clippings are all organized and annotated to support the theory that some sort of systemic collapse is imminent. Here, I have you know there are just millions of examples, but here's one where somebody else is, um, has produced a pretty mild risk assessment, and they've printed it out, and the person has just written nothing new here, right? Unremarkable because it's a mild risk assessment, and other things that are less mild, right? They'll have more um, exclamatory annotations. And then that's been filed away. Uh, the most significant thing they did, though, was circulate supposedly 20,000 copies of this thing, which is called the Y2K Community Report Card. And they sent it um, across the country, trying to get different organizations to respond and speak to their preparedness for Y2K. And then they compiled the results. And, Here's an image of the questionnaire, which you can't really make out. But um, the results of their survey confirmed their worst fears. It seemed to show that things like waste treatment facilities weren't ready, that vulnerable institutions like nursing homes were totally woefully uninformed, and that America was doomed. Um, Their holdings also really captured the long tail of the Y2K crisis and, as I mentioned a minute ago, the many commercial opportunities that, uh, that it seemed to present to kind of shill survivalist materials. So here's um, <laughs> instructions for ordering something called the Y2K Kitchen, which was a set of resources for cooking with canned and dried foods. This is a role-playing game um, called Countdown to Y2K. Uh, This is a book called Y2K for Women, How to Protect Your Home and Family in the Coming Crisis. And I think what, and there's just many, many, many more that show that no opportunity was lost to process, you know, stereotypes and cultural affinities and cultural norms through a kind of paranoid template that Y2K provided. The second organization, so... If the Center for Y2K and Society was devoted to this kind of grassroots fear-mongering, then the International Y2K Cooperation Center was devoted to sort of top-down fear assuaging, like everything will be okay. And the materials from their archive include professionally organized news clippings, like by day and subject, uh, a script for a 1-800 number that anyone could call and, you know, it would sort of Tell you everything was going to be okay with an automated voice. And if you could make it through the phone tree, you might actually talk to a human who would tell you everything was going to be okay. Especially if you were uh, responsible for an institution that had a computer system that you thought needed to be remediated. Um, and uh, it also includes details on something that was called the Y2K. Expert Service Corps which was a quote international network of Y2K experts who have volunteered their time and expertise to make available advice, intellectual capital and information. It also includes this very extensive project called the Y2K Community Conversations Campaign and these conversations were um, promoted as opportunities for business leaders and institutions to share their y2k preparations with locals, so come and hear how your local business or your state business is actually totally ready for y2k so this in this case, it wasn't about explaining um, how things are going to be okay or helping people prepare for disaster, but just saying like don't worry, we're ready." It was also an opportunity to kind of demystify uh, computer technologies so whereas some government agencies in this period were Focused on risk assessment and remediation, the uh, Cooperation Center was also trying its hand at community organizing, with developing a kind of pedagogy of preparedness. And I think what the collections of both of these organizations show was an attempt in this period, right, in the late 1990s, to educate diverse populations in the realities of technological precarity, right, in the realities of what. It means to use old code and old systems and legacy systems. It was an attempt to kind of collapse any division between computing and everyday life by educating people about the many daily activities uh, that were dependent on computers. And they lodged their explanations at multiple registers: at the local, right, what your um, pharmacy is doing, what your uh, uh, school is doing, and then the mundane, right, how your credit card. Uh, may or may not be at risk, how your um, social security checks may or may not be at risks, and then also the catastrophic. right? So one organization devoted more uh, emphatically to the catastrophic and the other one to downplaying those risks. The last part of the archive is press coverage. And specifically I'm looking here at how um, labor was talked about in this period and um, who was being described as responsible for repairing Y2K errors. So you'll remember from the beginning of this talk that COBOL's widespread popularity was in total contradiction to the number of people who were um, fluent in, in COBOL. And out of this you get these stories about old programmers being taken off of golf courses and brought back to work on programs that they had worked on their entire careers that they hadn't been paid very well for, that no one had appreciated them for, and um, being paid lots and lots of money to come back and fix them. (laughs) This is one story from the Washington Post, but there's an LA Times story that I think really captures these dynamics. uh, Here's an excerpt. Once considered the dinosaurs of the technological revolution, and mind the metaphors, uh, COBOL programmers (laughs) have become a hot commodity precisely because They stayed in the high-tech Jurassic era. Like priests who dutifully maintain dusty heaps of scrolls, they are being recalled from seclusion to recover the ancient knowledge of Cobol. Okay, so if kobol is the ancient knowledge kept by priests who weren't appreciated in their time, then Y2K was the sort of um, secret code that lay dormant in the text, right? And this is funny, except I think it's entirely typical of the actual active mystification that was happening about technology at this time. So on the one hand, you had very active efforts to demystify technology, to explain how things are actually fit together, and um, how you're at risk and not at risk. And at the same time, uh, very strange ways of talking about the labor of fixing computer code. And we know this because the Y2K crisis also led to one of the first massive um, hiring of IT, uh, Indian IT workers in the first wave of body shopping, where hundreds of thousands of workers in Hyderabad and Sydney were employed to fix Y2K errors. And nowhere in the coverage of um, the remediation effort is this talked about. And of course, this wave of body shopping was a part of ongoing um, changes uh, as a result of globalization and shifts in labor markets that Mary Gray can tell you a whole lot more about. But instead, you get these stories of underappreciated coders who um, were ignored in their time being called back for one last job. Right. So this is where I'm at. Uh, maybe the threat of Y2K was real, right? or maybe it was a $600 billion pragmatic response to ima- an imagined disaster. <laughs> but in either case, it was one of the world's largest attempts at basic technological remediation. There are kind of two stories that can be told here. Right? One is a, what looks like a punchline, what Louis Menand recently called a nutty cocktail of uh, Luddite millennialism and digital overthink right but from another perspective this is a hugely significant episode in crisis planning and management and a population-wide attempt at basic computer literacy campaigning i think that the reality is probably somewhere between these two Um, and that the kind of interest and focus on technological vulnerability on uh, relationships of interdependency uh, and that that y2k surfaced in this period make it a really rich site for talking about literacy building um, and the acts of care that we, we undertake at particular moments, and just how we talk to people about how computers work. So thank you for your time, and I'm really looking forward to our um, discussion. <laughs> Merrill.
1: Um, I'm wondering how, Amer- how U.S. centric this was considering you are from Canada yeah. and if there, if there was the, a, a sort of U.S. isolationist or some kind of response that and, and that positioned the U.S. in a particular way uh, in relation to the rest of the world when it came to managing this um but also if there were like canadian if there are like canadian archives of of this too yeah i guess two kind of questions
0: um i mean i can answer a little bit of that from the canadian perspective but does anybody else want to comment on what they perceive as the u.s centric nature of um the crisis i mean sheriff you were you were talking yesterday about the uk so we got, uh, it was phrased as a
2: bug, but that was one thing I wanted to ask you about, yeah.
0: um, the, the terminology.
2: So in the UK, definitely, um, the white UK bug was... Uh, something, uh, to be honest, some of what you were saying would absolutely map over. I don't remember um, the, the survivalist instinct. I think the North America perhaps has the, has the monopoly on it. Um, <laughs> Uh, narrative, think. but um, <clears throat> it was it was very much about finance that uh, because of the City of London. So the City of London being seen as this kind of great, you know, um, we had the Big Bang and the way in which the stock exchange was kind of elect, um, electrified and stuff. So it was very much around the, uh, around that. So we didn't have the didn't have as much of the community um, effort um, from from what I re- from what I remember. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was there but it, it came out differently. Yeah.
0: Just related to that question, uh, US is also different in that you use month, day, year instead of uh, day, month, year. And so how did that fit in? Uh, was this code used in other countries where that format already had to be rearranged? Wow, that's a really good question. Again, because Meryl M- 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 gave me off as a Canadian, of course that like ruins my life. Um, <laughs> Especially because my wife's birthday is March tenth, and my daughter's birthday is October third, and so yeah. it's just like it's impossible. Was <laughs> yeah.
2: um, it also about the ages of
0: the infrastructure? So,
2: would different countries have dealt with, like, would COBOL or certain kinds of instantiations? Would, would this problem not have shown up in countries where the financial infrastructure was newer? So, hmm. a newer language was set up, with different choices were hmm. made, or there was more storage. So, certain kinds of that's I don't, a, I don't that's know. An
0: So I can give you a few responses. One is that um, there's always a center and periphery problem, which is so the way it played out in Canada was as an American problem um, that we also have to deal with, right? Because our computer software comes from the United States, our banking software comes from the United States, and we're interdependent with the United States. So anything that affects you will affect us. So there's no, there was no idea that we could somehow uh, throw up a border and be isolated from the Y2K crisis. Okay. In the United States, and in some of the ways that it was talked about, there was also a totally um, xenophobic discussion, which was an idea that, OK, we're going to spend $100 billion to reach compliancy. We're going we're to introduce new regulations that are going to limit our exposure to this problem. Um, what we can't predict. Is what all of the countries who stole our software are going to do, right? And I'm not going to name the countries that they named, but you know they named very particular countries that had stolen our software and used it in their infrastructural projects, and we can't uh, guarantee compliance in that case. Name (laughs) one. The large, some of the largest, most populated countries in the world, right?
2: China.
0: So. But again, you know that's a question about right empire and its stretch and the ways in which it you know uh, gets taken up either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, there's another element to this, and were you the one who worked with insurance companies? Was it was you. <laughs> yeah. So we can we can talk a lot about that, which is you know the efforts to limit liability within the United States and exposure to lawsuits if there were um, disasters. So that's a big part of this question too. And other countries just don't have that structure of of litigation. So in Canada, there was no there was no fear that um, lawsuits as a result of Y two K would bring down the economy, as there was in the United States. That that fear, um, because uh, you can't sue people that easily in Canada. In part because uh, you have to pay their legal fees if you if you um, if you try to. All right. So there, yeah, all sorts of different ways that. Playo, but um, certainly it's a U.S. focus problem because that's where the hardware and the software came from.
3: Yeah,
1: I think it's. I, I definitely agree that the the litig- litigation risk of, of avoidance was something that certainly drove a lot of the headlines. Yeah, um, I think it's also interesting to map this crisis with the growth of uh, PC, the, the beginning of you know, PCs being right. sold, because for the first time, you know, I, I can't remember when IBM sold its first PC, but it, what, 95? Oh, much earlier. Earlier, much earlier. Yeah. Okay. More. What? Was it, more is like, it that yeah, much? Yeah, okay. Like, but in any, in any event, the, the boom in PC sales taking off meant that there was a lot more mindshare penetration in the general population, and, and which goes to that that wired quote yeah. sense of betrayal, yeah, you know that 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 could be experienced by a lot more people, um, right. as opposed to it just being a, an expensive business problem,
0: right? You know, and for the most part, PCs weren't at risk. Of no.
1: Qualified. Errors. But, but, uh, yeah. but if you had one, you'd probably yeah. worry about unknown known. And, you sure, know? and sure enough,
0: if you bought a computer in ninety seven through ninety <clears> nine, most <throat> likely bought it with a sticker on it that said Y two K compliant. <laughs> and, yeah.
3: Um, since you were out as a Canadian, I'll, out myself as somebody who once wrote a COBOL program, okay. uh,
0: <laughs> the um, high priest of the <laughs> you know, Jurassic no, I mean, that was that,
3: that was disgusting dirty work, you know, of dealing with, you know, money and you know, by the, you know, late nine, nineties, if you were doing stuff on the web, I mean there were no web servers running COBOL. Right. Um, but I mean, <clears throat> this is a really rich talk and there's so many threads to pursue. Um, I want to ask about a different kind of labor um, because one, you know, one of my recollections of this is sort of call it the formative aspects of the y2k mm-hmm. crisis um, at the time I worked for um, Tufts University and it was very important to the university you know that we hire um, a famous consultant it wasn't phrased like that but you know that was the signal that we were taking it seriously that we had you know a guy who had written columns about Y two K coming and talk to us every week, Um, and it was you know it functionally useless um, because there was you know great war stories, um, great you know call it prospective disaster porn, um, you know (laughs) how how would society collapse etc. Complete waste of time, but there was just so much of that um, you know which speaks to sort of the crisis mongering etc. I mean have you followed those threads um in sort of the rise of this sort of you know high priced consultant fear mongering?
0: Yeah, I haven't followed that thread. I don't know how I would follow that thread, except by so in the in the largest version of this project, um I would do something that I think is partly happening in this room, which is ask people where they were for Y2K. Um, and how they prepared for it, or if they were responsible for an organization or a part of an organization, you know what was imagined i talking to somebody who was a professor in one thousand nine hundred and ninety nine and happened to be the chair of a department, and um, his university asked him to you know sit in. Uh, the sort of server room with all the other departmental chairs on New Year's Eve 1999 to just like stare at the computers and he said no Um, but you know so those sorts of I think oral history would be the only real way of recovering that aspect of it Um, and it would be really difficult to parse you know how much of that was theatrical and how much of that was necessary and what we really actually think of as unnecessary right it might actually be important to bring in high-priced consultants if it like, assuages fears and allows people to just do their job. That might actually be a kind of minor cost. Or it's just a total boondoggle. Right? It, it's really difficult to draw those lines, but it's an interesting historical question. Yeah. Are we going to go through all this again in 2038? Well, it seems, uh, <laughs> I seem, I mean, it depends on if the world exists in 2038, but it seems, it seems like, do you want to explain to everyone why? Um. There is a a counter uh, for you know, I think it's number of seconds or it's number of microseconds. I can't remember yeah, microseconds. Microseconds uh, in Unix, the traditional thirty-two bit Unix, which is sort of you know gradually being replaced by sixty-four. But thirty-two bit Unix, uh, the last date that can be represented in that format is somewhere in twenty thirty-eight. Yeah. Unless you change it to an unsigned, in which case you get you get it longer, but then you cut off earlier dates. Yeah. So some version of this problem might exist again in twenty thirty eight to the extent that people are still using thirty two bit Unix systems, especially embedded systems that might not be replaced for thirty or forty years. Yeah. So it's entirely possible. And it will be a question of if it plays out the same or if it plays out differently because we went through this in nineteen ninety nine and it seemed like a false alarm, right? And what the social costs are to apparent false alarms for I can also, I can also look forward to twenty one hundred about how the anybody in the gonna be around then, so yeah yeah
3: so um Bruce Lewinstein at Cornell had an n s f grant to document the y two k public perceptions about the y two k problem, and I'm curious as if you worked with it and uh if it the idea of trying to um document as you go along is successful or not
0: right um and I've looked a little bit at at his at his research and it's actually in the archive as well i think. Um, possibly both organizations noted it, um, and what for me has been important about that research so far is the kind of arc of fear that seemed to peak around um, April. Now I can't remember if it's April nineteen ninety eight or April nineteen ninety nine, and then by December uh, nineteen ninety nine, um, fear had really <laughs> sort of dropped off, and cynicism had peaked. Right. Which is again funny, except that um, when we're talking about the management of crisis, really important to balance those things out. That you can't, if you have too much cynicism, you can't um, prompt collective action, and if you have too much fear, uh, you can't prompt, you know, responsible action. One of the
3: innovative features of that collection is they figured out a way to capture television references from the uh, major broadcast networks. relating to y2k including j leno and you know right. any anything else and you'd be I able to be, track that um, that. Yeah. that way um i think really strongly
0: yeah yeah yes yeah. Yeah, so dylan uh, this is such a rich project and i appreciate the archival dimension of it in particular but i'm wondering a little bit about what the post-mortem of all of this was i mean i'm thinking mm-hmm. in particular about a lot of SDS scholarship that's looked at the breakdown of large technical systems, the right. Challenger disaster, Brian, right, no the one that comes mm-hmm. most immediately to mind, the way that these large bureaucracies sort of knit the world back together after this happens. And right. this seems like it would be an interesting comparison with some of those. I think also of the hook and mouth outbreaks of the UK that mm-hmm. were kind of bio lab breakdown, mm-hmm. kind of protocol breakdowns. Um, so I'm just curious about what, you know did the James Glykes and public intellectuals and journalists um, undertake any post hoc analysis? uh, Or did we just kind of move on? So it comes up a little bit in SCS scholarship. There's this um, pretty important piece about repair by Thrift and Graham that talks about Y2K, but mostly in the valence of um, uh, perceived disasters that didn't happen, right? And so it gets totally rewritten as this punchline, as a the Louis Manon line as a kind of joke, um, and uh, as like a you know person committed to self sabotage, I often seek out these jokes and then try to make them serious and see like oh what really happened there and um, you know if we did a different kind of post mortem on that that wasn't just like oh okay we we blew it right we were too cons- we didn't understand computers well enough to reasonably assess what kind of danger they presented. That being said, I'm working on a kind of long-term project with a colleague who does um, histories of the AIDS movement in the 1990s and its relationship to technology and community internet provision. And um, it's, so the project uh, compared to this one, which we just kind of call bugs, Um, looks at uh, these two things as kind of mirror images right a crisis in which everyone was paying attention but nothing happened and a crisis in which uh, uh, a lot of people died and no one was paying attention and when we started as when we started on the project we were thinking of them as these sort of mirror images and they would offer an opportunity to kind of provoke and um, understand the others From a different angle, but what we also started to find was just tons of references in the Y two K literature about HIV and AIDS, right? About the spread of um, harm through networks, through um, through vulnerable systems and vulnerable people, and even in Manuel Castells' work um, in *The Network Society*, he often returns to HIV and AIDS as a way of mapping networks and especially um, networks of sort of uh, um, compounded harm. And um, there's an online resource for um, people living with HIV and AIDS called The Body that some people might be uh, aware of. Um, and on The Body, you get columns in '97, '98, '99 about the other uh, millennial crisis, right? And um, uh, Tony Kushner's Angels in America, subtitled Millennium Approaches, right? And so you actually have these kind of twin crises of uh, the, the 90s. Um, that play out in in different ways but are then refracted in each other. Um, And so part of looking at this project is looking at the understanding of crisis not just now and doing a postmortem but in the 1990s and the ways that these sort of relationships were being thought through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Other than the uh, 2038 problem uh, have you looked
2: into uh, possibilities for other such disasters looming like internet addresses, et cetera, et cetera, which I think are pretty well under under control, but I don't know. Uh, There might be a number of other things in the next 50 years that could happen.
0: Um, I mean, I haven't actively sought to compare this to the internet addresses problem or to the 2038 problem um, because there's no shortage of impending disasters. And it's a, a kind of question of, I mean, this goes back to the thing I just said, right? There, are no, there is no shortage of disasters and crises and people in harm's way and people who need help and who are vulnerable. And what's interesting about this crisis, and this is what I pointed to is, I think it had pretty special structure that it was a switch from nines to zeros, you know, and all of the sorts of um, millennial uh, fear building that come with the turnover of any century. And I know it's not the century, but whatever. Um, that it's a question of like which crisis actually emerges as the one that needs attention paid to it, right? So it would be, it would be remiss of me to look forward and say, well, that crisis is going to play out this way or that way. But um, we have to look backwards sometimes and see, like, oh, it's strange that that one is the one that got the attention. Yeah, Tarleton.
2: I think the point about the shape of the crisis is really interesting, this idea of like it hasn't happened yet, but we all kind of know the date, right? which is right. a very unusual one. It was making me think about this as an exact comparison, but I was thinking about if part of your story is how how do people have to learn that infrastructure that they count on is vulnerable, right, in ways that they have otherwise not wanted to think about. I mean, you know, if Ellen Olma is right, like encourage not to think about it things. It perfect, it's seamless, it works great, and then suddenly to have to discover and then have to act upon. I was thinking about things like um, you know when there were major commitments to retrofit bridges because right. the science you know sometimes it's because you know the Tacoma Narrows collapses or there's some striking disaster Minnesota. but other times it's moments where the science develops an argument that says what we thought was st- was sturdy could be vulnerable in certain circumstances right. And when you said that this was one of the most expensive kind of remediations I was wondering if if we could if we counted those things like if the sort of like bridge retrofit as a like widespread if that's a network that you know has certain kinds of invisible vulnerabilities. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the numerical. I don't know how you amass that number, but it's another one where you sort of like you want to count on the idea that roads stay where roads are put and bridges carry cars, and that those things, you know, if the wind blows the wrong way, they don't twist
0: themselves. There was them one down. bridge in Minnesota that triggered a lot yeah. of this.
2: Right. Right. So there's one shape of like there's an incident that then makes other things vulnerable, <laughs> not just that bridge, but every bridge. But there's also things like. Um, uh, discoveries about
0: infrastructure that then have to raise questions yeah so I brought this up rudely uh, th- this is a you know Google ngrams aren 't perfect things but this is a Google ngram of the term infrastructure crisis um, and infrastructure crisis is really interesting to me because it seems to be one of the only problems that we currently have uh, that has sort of transpartisan agreement that it's a uh, that infrastructure is a virtuous thing that need in need of repair and treating you know on Trump's um, acceptance speech on the uh, the night of the election you know he talked about the infrastructure crisis so you can see from this that it kind of uh, took off in the mid to late 1980s that's where the term really start being used and um, uh, the, I have another one that goes to 2007 but it really peaks around the year 2000 and it is extremely it is like highest popularity in the 1990s which is interesting to remember because it seems to also be very current presently. So uh, one answer to that question is there are these moments in which certain things seem to be in crisis and now we're talking about infrastructure being in a 30 year period of crisis and how that actually works as a kind of engine for for promoting whether it's like scientific investigation or social scientific investigation um, and the kinds of questions that we have to ask like, okay, so are we concerned about bridges or roads or computer infrastructure or um, internet security or nuclear safety or, um, but the infrastructure crisis just becomes a a, a kind of um, pen for holding those things in, right? We can kind of lump those things in there. That being said, in the late 1990s, uh, few people were talking about computers as infrastructure, right, even within science and technology studies. Paul Edwards writes like computers as infrastructure in 1997 I think right so convincing the very field that I think would most embrace that concept right contemporaneously with this crisis. Um, And I'm not sure that if you ask politicians when they think of an infrastructure crisis, if they're thinking about old computer codes and the risks that it poses, um, I don't know if that that partly answers your question. Yeah.
3: Two provocations I'd like you to respond to. I mean, if you view this as a sort of calendaring software um, provoke crisis. then you'd think one of the responses is, "Okay, you know, time is important. We need to get this right in our systems." Yet, you know, it seems like every leap year, every leap second, um, etc., you know, there's a news story about some major system that could not cope and, um, you know, did something wrong. the The other way to look at this crisis is that it wasn't, um, you know, the the Y2K was the trigger, but this was really about, um, misunderstanding the longevity of software. Um, you know, I mean, those of us who wrote some of these programs, I mean, knew we were doing a terrible job and simply assumed that they would be thrown away. Right. Um, right. You know, and that would have been the responsible thing to do. And then oh my god, they're running twenty years later. Of course they're not Y2K compliant. You know, we you know, we were lucky that they were nineteen ninety compliant. <laughs> and there were so, there were actually nineteen ninety problems yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, um, but then you see something like the Amazon S three problem last week, if are um, familiar, you know, yeah. um, um, you know, a typo you know, in some command line takes out systems, but it turns out they've never rebooted this stuff. Um, You know, and that's sort of like one of the maintenance lessons out of Y2K. Yes, of course, you're going to have to. There there will come a point where you will have to restart these things, and you really ought to know how that stuff works. So we haven't, you know, we haven't actually learned the longevity reasons, longevity lessons either. I guess if I turn that into a question, it's like, are we doomed?
0: <laughs> no, I mean I think it, um, your provocation captures, I think, with kind of attention of this this, of this history and and the way that the problem is described, is it an easy problem to fix? Like, okay, we just need to do a better job of X. In this case, representing the calendar, right? And yeah, those problems come up all the time. There was that thing last year that 4chan, somebody on 4chan made an image that said like, oh, set your iPhone to the date January 1st, 1970 and reboot it. And we've introduced a cool thing that will make it seem like Apple in the 1970s. Right. It'll be a blast from the past. Of course, it bricked your phone, because if you're west of GMT, that's not a, that date doesn't exist in Unix time. Right. And so that, like the Y2K crisis, exposes the fact that that calendars are infrastructural and they're actually pretty easy to tweak. And the ways that they're integrated with other forms of technology are easy to tweak. So, yes, that is certainly an aspect of it. And you have to be careful about the representation of time and technology. But also it was a trigger. Right, It was uh, a, a way of, of saying, yes, we need to be more responsible about the longevity of our software. And if anything, we're less responsible about the longevity of our software as we were in 1999. So if there was one lesson that came out of it, it was that uh, uh, very few people will be held responsible or accountable for, techn- for decisions and design choices that were made at one point and how they played out in the future. Um, and if there's another lesson, is that like you have to be really careful with the public's trust. Right? So either you're saying, uh, I'm sorry we made a decision in 1960, and now it's having this impact. right? I'm sorry, but here's what you need to do to prepare yourself. But then you have the, the after effect, which is, I'm sorry we told you that that was maybe going to be a disaster. It probably was, but we fixed it. Right? Either that's an opportunity to build trust and say, like, okay, we're we're telling you, we're telling you that we screwed up, or it's an opportunity to lose trust. But it was also at that point imagined as a chance to make computer engineers more responsible, right? And so I, I just, there's another article from the 1990s about, well, this is an opportunity to start certifying all computer engineers, right? This is this is finally the call. Like We need to have a professional organization. Nobody can be a software engineer unless they're a certified software engineer. And there's this quote, 1998, John R. Speed, who was the executive director of the Texas Board of Professional Engineers, right? he says, uh, many have called themselves software engineers. Wrong. They're the local music dropout who chooses to use that title. Right. And so this is actually an, a kind of incredible moment in which this division of kinds of engineer was still sort of animating the ways people viewed this problem. It's like this is a result of people who aren't engineers who made engineering choices and now we're having to pay for the consequences.
3: If engineers built buildings the way programmers wrote programs, The first woodpecker would end (laughs) civilization. Yeah, I remember that. That's a great (laughs) name.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. thanks everyone.
3: Oh, what was the nineteen ninety problem? I didn't. I never. I don't remember hearing about that. I I mean, it
2: wasn't widespread, but the the same sort of thing where people who wrote code
3: didn't expect.